Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. I'm Joe Zaylot, your host. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. I'm joined today by Bobby Schindler, brother of Terry Schiavo and president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. In our interview, Bobby will reflect on what we as a society have learned and not learned since Terry's death in 2005. He will also explain what the Life and Hope Network is and discuss its work advocating for vulnerable patients, including those suffering from the effects of COVID-19. Bobby Schindler, welcome to Bioethics on Air. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for the invitation. Not a problem. So, Bobby, I ask this of every new guest on our podcast, and obviously you're a new guest on our podcast. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit about your background, specifically your education, work experience, leading up to your involvement with the uh, Life and Hope Network. Sure. Well, I actually grew up, uh, our entire family grew up, not far from your offices there in Philadelphia, yep. a suburb of uh, Philadelphia, Huntington Valley. And uh, there was my mom and dad, and you know, I had three, three. I have two siblings. There was Terry was first. Uh, she was born in '63. I came along 13 months later in '65, and then a younger sister, Suzanne, uh, 1968. So she's our. I still call her my little sister. So we grew up uh, in Philadelphia, um, and went through the parochial school system there. Went to uh, our, our Lady of Good Counsel in Southampton. Uh, then we all went to uh, Archbishop Wood High School. It was. Uh, a boys and girls school back then, but I, I know since they've combined. Uh, after graduating high school at Archbishop Wood, uh, I went on to uh, attend LaSalle University, uh, which again isn't far from, from your offices uh, there in Philadelphia. Uh, after that, while I was at LaSalle, my parents, actually my entire family, had relocated to, to uh, Florida. So I moved to Florida after that. And while I was in Florida, I, I went back to school for a passion I've always had, and that was weather. Uh, and I, I went and received a meteorology degree at um, at Florida State University, and that was in the early '90s. Yeah, I could see you're wearing a Florida State University hat right, right. now in our interview. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so after uh, after I graduated, I was in a before uh, I went back to meteorology school. I was in I was in sales. I, I received a marketing degree from LaSalle University and used that. And I was in sales uh, for a few years before I went back to Florida State. And then subsequent to my graduation at Florida State, I, I moved back to uh, St. Petersburg and I got a job at Tampa Catholic. Uh, and I taught mostly seniors. And I used, now I, I tried to get into uh, into uh, uh, weather, TV weather, TV weatherman, so to speak. And I, I won't go into the details, but uh, I guess the Lord directed me where uh, he thought I'd be better in, in, in the classroom. So I I taught seniors, and I used my degree, actually. I, I was able to get the job teaching math and science because of my meteorology degree. So I, I spent eight years at Tampa Catholic, and towards the end of those eight years is when my sister's case uh, um, started to, uh, I guess it was in 2000. Uh, I went to. I was at Tampa Catholic and starting in 1997, so 2000 when the case really started. And then um, uh, after Terry died uh, in 2005, uh, I, my family, we we established the nonprofit the uh, uh, in response to Terry's death, and uh, and I started there. So I left Tampa Catholic and and started the nonprofit in 2005, and then and then after that I. Because I was using you know, ethics, medical ethics, and uh, I was now kind of thrown into this this world, felt it was important to go back and learn more about uh, the stuff that I was dealing with every day, and received a master's at um, at University of Mary, uh, and just recently, in, in um, uh, just a few years ago, uh, and and of course we went through the NCBC, uh, that was a, a part of the program, which was it was just a terrific program. I learned. Gosh, I didn't realize uh, how much I didn't know about ethics. Even even being in this battle for as long as I I was, I learned a tremendous amount of valuable information that uh, I apply almost every day to the work that I do. So that's kind of my background in education and and what brought me here today. Yeah, it's it's really funny how many people 
I meet who are high school Catholic high school teachers. I was one. We we did a podcast with Charlie Camosi a few uh, a few weeks ago, and and Charlie was one too. It's, it's just so funny that the this this connection that a lot of people have. So, all right. I love, so, yeah, I love I love teaching high school. In fact, if I wasn't working in a nonprofit world, I'd go back in a second and, and teach again. I I really really enjoyed it. Well, well, good. All right. So now you mentioned. Uh, the situation with your with your sister with your sister Terry, and I'd I'd like to ask you about that. So so she died back in two thousand five, and I'm I'm thinking it's you know it's been sixteen years now. So there are likely a number of our probably younger listeners or even our international listeners who don't know who Terry was or what she experienced. So I was wondering, can you give us a uh, give us a brief overview of the story? As this is really what propelled you into the uh, the Life and Hope Network. Right. I, you know, I'll tell you, Joe, I'll just give you a real quick summary. If, if you want more detail, yep. I can do that. I mean, Terry, we could be on this uh, program for four hours. It's going to cover all that. <laughs> Maybe a future podcast if we want to. Right. Uh, well, in 1990, Terry was 25 years old. She was, it was, we were in Florida and, and she uh, unexpectedly, and to this day, we have no explanation the reasons why, but she collapsed and she went. Uh, she was home alone with her husband, Michael Shivo at the time, and she sustained a, a, a profound brain injury. And uh, as a result of that brain injury, uh, she had a very difficult time swallowing uh, and needed a feeding tube in order to continue living. But that was it. She wasn't on any ventilators. Uh, the only thing keeping her alive was the same thing that keeps us all alive, which is food and water, although she had to deliver it through a, a feeding tube. But she was not in a coma. Uh, she was not uh, brained. I mean, I'm just kind of saying these things because they're even to this day, um, they're repeated uh, oftentimes um, in the media, uh, schools, uh, whoever it is talking about Terry's case. So she wasn't brain dead. She wasn't in a coma. Uh, I believe that she was minimally conscious. Uh, but this happened again back in, in 2000. And I'm sorry, in ni- 1990. Uh, again, not to get into all the details, but her husband at the time was um, was caring for Terry along with my parents, uh, Michael Chavo. He was the guardian of Terry, so he had a, a really complete control over her care and her medical decisions. And for the first couple of years, things were fine. Uh, and, and in fact, Terry was getting very aggressive rehabilitation, and she was responding to that. She was starting to, uh, it was slow, uh, but she was starting to form words and starting to communicate at a, at a a higher level, if you will, uh, un- and this was the first couple of years. So we were we were encouraged and had some hope that Terry was going to continue uh, recovering. To what extent we didn't know. While she was receiving the rehabilitation therapy, unfortunately, just two years after the, the Terry's accident, nineteen ninety, Michael had a change of heart and and went from caring and loving his husband to uh, to pursuing her death, and uh, and and it started. Uh, just a couple of years, 1993. Uh, we found out late, and my parents, obviously, and, and my sister Suzanne and myself were against this. Um, my 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 parents found out later that Michael was living with another woman, and um, eventually uh, got engaged and married this woman. So his loyalty seemed seemed to us that they shifted, and um, and we're now to this woman he was living with, and and was trying to end Terry's life. There was a significant amount of money that was in a medical trust established for Terry uh, that Michael would inherit if Terry would die because he was the guardian. And, you know, we we just felt like there were things that were motivating him and and he was not acting in the best interest of of Terry, my sister, even though he was the guardian. So my parents, people don't realize, I mean, this case made a lot of of, uh, news, but back there from 1993 up until 1998, 2000, there was really a lot of uh, things happening in the courts where my parents were trying to remove Michael as guardian, and, and they were unsuccessful. And then in 2000, Michael uh, formally petitioned the court in Pinellas County, Florida, uh, for permission to remove Terry's food and hydration, her feeding tube. Uh, there was a week-long trial in front of Judge George Greer. Uh, Michael testified that, he, that before Terry collapsed, she made uh, verbal wishes that she would not want to live if she was in this type of condition. It was hearsay evidence. Uh, Michael also had his brother and sister-in-law testify, uh, collaborating with what Michael was saying. Our family and many of Terry's friends uh, testified uh, contrary to this, that Terry, we never heard Terry ever 
mention these these things to us. Uh, and there was no advanced directive. There was nothing written. So, uh, so that's essentially Michael went to the court despite the conflicts of interest that he had, and, and we felt comfortable or confident that the judge would also see and uh, and 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 rule in favor of allowing my parents uh, to to take care of Terry and remove Michael's guardian. Unfortunately. After a week-long trial, Judge Greer uh, ordered uh, in favor of Michael and ruled that he could remove Terry's food and hydration. Our family went through a, a protracted legal battle from 2000 until 2005. The case really snowballed and started making local news at first, then statewide news, then uh, then throughout the nation, and then international news. Uh, and in fact, the Florida legislature got involved. Je- uh, Governor Jeb Bush got involved. Eventually, the Congress of the United States got involved. The president of the United States got involved. Vatican officials got involved. Uh, Pope John Paul was involved, all in support of Terry's life. And uh, and this was all occurring uh, during the appeal process during these five years. And uh, not to mention you know, people all over the world, essentially, were also supporting our parents' efforts to try and, and save Terry from, from being starved and hydrated to death. Unfortunately, uh, despite all this support we were receiving, we were we were unsuccessful. And in uh, March 18, 2005, Terry's feeding tube was removed, and then 14 day, almost 14 days later, uh, she died of uh, starvation and dehydration uh, on March 31st, 2005. So that, that that's that's believe it. I mean that believe it or not, and I mean that took a few minutes, but that's about as quick for people who don't know anything about right. her case. You know, I, I tried to at least give some kind of background on, on what was going on and and uh, what, what what brings us here today. Yeah, huh. I, I I can remember um, when all of this hit the hit the news. I'm I'm talking really 2004 2005 when it went national and and international. And I know in a previous conversation I I asked you this question, um, but I want to ask it to you again. And I because I, I really. I, I think your your response when you when we talked about it earlier um, is something that our audience should hear and it may have some relevance for things that we talk about later in this interview. But for me and for many others, the only real insight I guess we had into your sister's case came through the media. And I'm what I heard through the media while this was going on is very different from what you just said about your sister's condition. I mean, we were told that she was, you know, she was brain dead. She was in a persistent vegetative state, you know, again and again and again. So I, I'm wondering, I, I you can comment a little bit, did, did the media give us an accurate portrayal of Terry's condition as it was unfolding? And, and what did they, or what did they not tell us? Right. Well, we, our family never believed they did. You know, some, some, some media outlets were, were, were reporting the story better than others. But unfortunately, right there in our and locally, St. Peter's, the St. Petersburg Times uh, was 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 not helpful at all in getting out accurate information. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, our family, we were just an ordinary family, and, and we kind of got thrown into this. So we had no idea what to expect uh, from the media. We we thought they would be objective and, and report the case and what was what was happening, and we, we found out real quick. Uh, that, that, that there was a bias, I, I think, to ending Terry's life, and uh, and it wasn't what they were just it wasn't what they were saying, Joe. It was what they were omitting as well. Yeah, uh, about yeah. Terry's condition, about the case, about Michael in particular, about his conflicts of interest, uh, and really trying to demonize my family uh, uh, and my parents in particular, like that would matter. Uh, I mean. You, you, Michael was trying to kill my sister. He was trying to remove her food and hydration. So uh, that was the issue. Um, my parents weren't the issue. I know they were the ones trying to care for her, but it, it was almost like they were trying to deflect from uh, the fact that they were they were going to starve and dehydrate a disabled person to death and uh, tried to portray my parents as being unreasonable and, and all, and and, and, and just misrepresenting her condition. The the one thing that I found out quick, Joe, was very frustrating for our family was um, when the media would, and we did hundreds and hundreds of interviews. And and I would always, uh, when I I learned what was happening and some of the things that were being reported and not reported, I I would always uh, start the interview by saying, look, you know, we're going to talk about a lot of things here. Please validate or verify everything that I'm saying. Right. Uh, and please do the same for Michael and his attorney. 
uh, validate, verify what, what they are saying. Because what we were learning was Michael and his attorney were saying things that just weren't true. And there was no, there was no verification or there was, there was nothing. They weren't verifying whether it was true or not, uh, which was really frustrating. They would just quote them and it would stay there. And, you know, for us, we would read these things. We knew they weren't true. And we felt it was the media's job to, to, uh, to, to prove its accuracy or disprove it. And, and it seems to me they, they wouldn't do that or didn't do that. So there's a lot of misinformation that Michael was sharing uh, about Terry's case and condition and his attorney, and it would it would the media report it, and they would you know rarely or uh, you know I don't remember, but oftentimes it just was never validated as being true or not, and that that was frustrating. So there's a lot of things. In, in fact, I think even you kind of alluded to there was things that are still said in the media that are inaccurate, and they just keep getting regurgitated and regurgitated with no correction being made on on what was the truth. Uh, and, you know, as hard as we try, it just, it's nearly impossible at this point to, to really go back and, and fix so much of what has been said about my sister that, that, that simply just isn't true. Yeah. I was wondering, you know, as, as you're speaking, I, I, another question popped into my head is, is what were Terry's medical providers saying? What, 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 I mean, not filtered through the media, but what were you getting from her doctors and those who were caring for her? Well, you know, you just remind. I just let me give you this quick example because we're, uh, we're we're talking about the media. So, so here's here's an example, and this kind of kind of jogged my memory. Uh, they would report Michael's doctors say that Terry is in a you know this condition, and right. uh, they would always cite Michael's doctors, and then they would come back and say Terry's parents believe that she's in a uh, you know in a minimal or whatever they would say. You know, I. It's funny you say that because in textbooks and, and everything else, you're exactly right. Michael's doctors would say this, and Terry's parents would say that. You're absolutely right. right. Absolutely. So, right. And we had it wasn't my parents. My parents were getting well. My parents had eyewitnesses account of my sister and, and how she was able to communicate. But my parents were just repeating and and verifying what our our doctors were saying and examined Terry. So it's these these little these little games they play. But they, but but they they impact the reader uh, and anybody who you know when they're reading that they're going to come to the conclusion. Well, these aren't doctors that are supporting Terry's condition. These are just the parents. Right. Yeah. So, Great point. Yeah, we had doctors. Uh, we had doctors, and in fact, if you go, we we've I still have them on the website. We had upwards of forty. I believe there was forty medical professionals, uh, speech therapists, neurologists, some of the most prominent neurologists in the country at the time. That were all that all submitted affidavits to the court, uh, either saying Terry was not in a persistent vegetative state, and or could have benefited from uh, rehabilitation therapy that had been denied to her for the better part of ten years. So, um, you know, if you go back and, and and look in in the accounts that the media would would report, how often would you read that or see that? And I'll challenge anyone to find me where. They would cite these these neurologists, these medical professionals, and 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 what they believe in, in their their testimony as far as Terry's condition. But we, it was never, rarely, if ever, reported uh, that the, these doctors existed and uh, and and uh, you know Terry's condition and 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 which was very much different from what Michael was portraying my sister uh, during during this case at the time. Yeah. So, Bobby, as a society. What lessons do you think we learned from your sister's ordeal and death? And, and what lessons did we not learn? Right. Well, um, that's a great question. I know I learned a lot uh, during my sister's case. And, and, and I think some of the things that I learned, much of the country has not learned yet uh, or know. And it's impacting you know, many of these types of cases, not just here in the United States, but globally, really. And, and what I'm referring to one in particular, which is, is something that I talk about uh, when, when we get invited to speak or whatever it is, when I have an opportunity to share with people, it's, it's the feeding tube issue. Um, there, was a, there was a time not that long ago, and you know this, Joe, that, that feeding tubes were considered ordinary and basic care. Uh, and, and it was, and we, we don't have to go back with the history of feeding tubes, but uh, and reclassified. And now they are Considered extraordinary care, 
life, artificial life support and or medical treatment. And because of this changing of the wording or the definition of feeding tubes, uh, it's, it's now legal in all 50 states to either withdraw or deny a feeding tube to an individual. Uh, some states, it can be easier than others, but nevertheless, um, this this is this this was a, a major change and has and has affected countless number of people with disabilities, the elderly, those with Alzheimer's, dementia, uh, where they are now at risk just because of these uh, as a consequence of feeding tubes being redefined. And that was something during my sister's case. I I was I had I, I wasn't aware that that feeding tubes were considered medical treatment. And if if you go back, it's interesting. You go back, and I noticed with Michael's attorney. Uh, would would never ever uh, refer to Terry. He always uh, spoke to Terry as being on artificial life support. Mm-hmm. That's very confusing for the unknowing public because to them they interpret that as Terry being on a ventilator right, or a machine. Exactly. Uh, and he and he and he did that deliberately. He did not want people to know that uh, the public to know that Terry was receiving food hydration through a feeding tube uh, because that that kind of changes their narrative and. And perhaps changes the way people feel about what they were trying to do to my sister. Right. Yeah. And, and just to, for clarity's sake, so so if the Catholic Church does maintain that nutrition and hydration are ordinary means of care, there are situations where they can become extraordinary. But you know, the the default position is that it's an ordinary means of care. And Bobby, is um, this shift that you said in in society is it because nutrition and hydration have been redefined as a medical treatment? Is is that really what's kind of at the heart of this? Right, and and, it, and I was speaking in the context of my sister, where a person is not dying, uh, as Terry was not dying, and uh, she's able to assimilate or metabolize food and hydration through a feeding tube. In, in those types of situations, we are uh, obligated to continue care for that person with the feeding tube. And yeah, as you said, Joe, there are there are circumstances, depending on what they are, specific to the person's medical, uh, the, you know, medically what's going on with that person. There, there can be times where it's appropriate to stop food hydration through a feeding tube. So it just depends on, on the situation. But in cases like Terry, it, it's, it's, uh, it's you, you know, remo- the removing of a height of her food hydration, which I, I still in the church still considers basic care. You're, you're, you're doing something that that's imposing death on that person. And, uh, um, and, and that's what was happening in Terry's case. Did that answer your question? Um, yeah, yeah, it does. And it actually leads, uh, it, it, it's a great uh, lead into my next question. And it's really um, the question about the Life and Hope Network. So Bobby, you are the president of the Terry Schiavo Life and Hope Network. And I was wondering if you tell our listeners, uh, first, what is the network? Um, I think we know why it was formed. I was going to ask you why, but you can speak about that a little bit. But what is it? Why was it formed? And what does it seek to do? Sure. Well, it was really uh, you know, obviously it goes it goes back to Terry's situation, and and during that time it was five years. Uh, it was in the courts, and as the game was as as the case was gaining more publicity, we were starting and, and we formed a website, and and we're just start trying to get as much information out to people to try and stop this from happening. Uh, so we were getting contacted by families that were caring for individuals very similar to my sister with brain injuries and. Uh, that that needed feeding tubes, and they were, and quite quite honestly, uh, Joe, they were scared to death, seeing what was going on with Terry and how hard we had to fight just to maintain her food and hydration. And and they were, uh, and you know, Michael, the guardian, with his conflicts, was able to come in and convince a court to deliberately starve and dehydrate her death. So they were scared. And after Terry died, we were hearing from these families and and essentially asking us to continue speaking out for these individuals. Uh, they were scared because parents, uh, and, and understandably, if something would happen to the parents and their loved one who they were caring for, perhaps in a situation like Terry, they were scared to death if they became wards of the state, if the state would take steps to uh, to stop their food and hydration like they did to my sister. And so it was, it was that, that was, um, that, that, that was for our family, that was, uh, uh, a big reason uh, of forming the nonprofit, but also just by what they did to my sister, and we saw all, all the misinformation and and uh, the confusion that existed because of Terry's case, and, and we wanted to continue to advocate for for people like her, and so we started this nonprofit, and, and that's basically the the primary objective of our nonprofit is to serve as patient advocates 
uh, when families call us in crisis because they're worried that their loved one is either going to be denied or withdrawn of, of care. Right. Is it mostly, are, the, are most of the cases that you're dealing with, are they nutrition and hydration cases or do they run a gambit of, 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 different, uh, of different withdrawal of care issues? Right. We, we, uh, you know, initially we, we were just going to try and focus on food and hydration removal or withdrawn or denial. And, uh, since then we were getting just all different kinds of calls for denial of care, withdrawn of care could be a ventilator, just depending on the situation. Uh, and, uh, ethical questions, uh, we, we receive, uh, frequently. And, and so we, we, we brought in our scope, uh, to where, where we just, felt though i mean it's funny you know you try to stay laser focused on your mission then you get a call from a family and uh you know who needs uh uh, for example i'm uh, trying to think of a call we would get that 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 needs uh medical equipment or something like that or uh and and you want to try and help even though it's not even part of the the work that you do so it's it's hard to turn down someone that calls us for help so we we try to accommodate unless it's something that we just know we we can't be of any help but but yeah but but primarily it's it's a crisis situation joe where, where a family member or this the, the healthcare agent is having a uh, an issue where they're whoever it is that they're they're advocating for is in direct threat of having their care stopped or denied yeah withdrawn or denied correct me if i'm wrong were you personally or the network involved with um, either the Charlie Guard or the Alfie Evans cases in the UK? Right. We were, we've were we been involved, uh, closely involved in uh, well, the Charlie Guard situation. I actually flew over uh, to England during that case, a terrible uh, case. Uh, Alfie Evans, we were not as involved, but were in touch with the family. We were also involved, I don't know if you remember the uh, Ilana Inglaro issue in Italy. That was eerily similar to, to Terry's situation on how it went through the courts and actually reached uh, the, the president of, of Italy at the time advocating for Ilana. That was the father in that situation, the father taking the steps. And he was successful uh, removing Ilana's uh, uh, feeding tube. Uh, and that, that was back in 2008, uh, Joe. In fact, my dad at the time, who he was still alive, uh, he wrote a personal letter to the father. Uh, asking him to please don't do this to his daughter. Uh, unfortunately, uh, as I said, we were unsuccessful, and, and they were able to do do essentially what they did to Ilana, to my sister, uh, to the same as what they did to Terry. Right. There's also the Vincent Lambert case in France, not that long uh, ago. Yep. Yeah, I remember we that one. Yep. That case as well. Uh, there was also the, the Baby Joseph case in Canada that made international news. Uh, that was back in in. The uh, 2011, 2010, 2011. Uh, so yeah, we we've been involved in quite a few cases outside the United States, and um, and and um, many times they've they've turned into high profile cases, and uh, and we just do what we can to try and help the family. Yeah, do you feel you've been successful in this work? Yeah. I don't know how you would, depending how you define success, but I, I gotta no, uh, well. Ultimately, I'd have to say we've been successful in these cases, I think, to help draw more publicity to the situation. And and that does help because we're under the belief that you want to expose if if it's if it's fitting, I mean if it's if it's appropriate, you want to expose whatever it's the hospital, the doctors, for what they're trying to do, because they they would prefer to do it behind closed doors in secret without any fanfare or publicity. But we want to come in if if they're not if they're not uh, doing what we feel or the family obviously. And and and, we, and by the way, Joe, we we never impose ourselves on us. We we families always reach out to us. Yeah. We we won't get involved in the case unless a family member contacts us to help. Uh, and it's all volunteer. We don't we don't require any any type of financial. Um, you know, any, anything financial to, to help families, but, but we've, we've helped drawing publicity. Unfortunately, I, I'm just trying to think off the top of my head. Um, we, we've been, we've been successful in saving lives, but more times than not, you know, the family is unsuccessful in, in trying to get what, you know, the care they're, they're, you know, whatever it is that, uh, whatever fight they are having with, 
battle they're having with either the hospital or a, a, another family member. It just depends. But too many times we lose these these cases, but but we've had a number of successes as well, and and that's what makes you um, continue to want to try and, and help with these families and advocate for them when they call us. Yeah, and you're bringing truth to the world, and hopefully well, yes. that will bear fruit as as time goes by. Yes, well, that, that's the most importantly because there is, as you know, Joe. I mean, you're in you're in this work too, and there's so much confusion and, and misinformation. Oh and, yeah. Uh, that exist and and people just don't know and and, and the other thing too is that old saying you, you never you never think this is going to happen to you right you, you never think you're going to be you're going to have to care for someone uh, that one day was fine and the next day wh- whether it might be a car accident or a stroke or uh, there, there's different things that can put somebody in a vulnerable situation medically and uh, you just never know if that's going to happen to to a loved one or a family member and um, so. So yeah, and as you know, it it's uh, it, it, it's it happens too much, and unfortunately, we're, we get regular calls from from families that are in crisis, uh, needing help. Yeah, I know that feeling. So we are recording this interview on April twenty first of twenty twenty one. So we are a year plus. Uh, you figure thirteen months or so into the COVID nineteen pandemic, at least here in the United States. And I'm wondering, Bobby, in, in terms of COVID-19, um, what specific issues is the Life and Hope Network dealing with? And, and are the challenges or the, the issues uh, that you're dealing with um, in terms of COVID-19, are they different from what you normally encounter? They're different. Uh, we've, we, we haven't – they've actually uh, dissipated uh, – uh, Joe in the last, and that could just be because of the virus itself is slowing down. Uh, but mm-hmm. back last summer, we, we were getting quite a few calls, uh, uh, very similar. It was uh, the denial of care, using COVID as a reason to deny care. Mm, okay, but I, but I think um, I think uh, we were getting more calls from families that weren't allowed to visit their loved ones. Exactly. Yeah, we get a lot of those too. Yeah, and I think that was in the me- we saw a lot of that in the media as well. Uh, so a lot of these decisions were, were being made and, and families had no way of stopping it or, or being part, being in visiting with their loved one. And, and that was, in fact, here in Cincinnati, there was a case of a good friend of mine uh, whose, whose father was in hospice and this was during COVID. And he was, uh, they felt as though he was very close to, to, to dying within uh, hours and so his his son, my friend, was visiting his dad during his his his, his while he was in, in the dying process. Well, once you know, five p.m. comes when uh, it's visiting hours are over because they put a pretty strict restrict uh, you know with the restrictions with COVID, and they told him he had to leave, and he said no, I'm going to be here when my dad passes away, mm-hmm. and uh, they threatened to call the cops. And my friend said, I, you can call the cops. I'm not leaving. They did. They called the police. Uh, he sent me a picture. Uh, there must've been four or five patrol cars that pulled up to this hospice facility to, to remove him because he wanted to be with his father in his final moments. Uh, fortunately they were able to, uh, to work it out where he, they allowed him to stay. And he was there, uh, when his father passed. But sadly, the sis, his sister was also there, was so frightened from being arrested, she left and, um, and was not there when her, when her dad passed away. But my friend was. And, uh, but, but we've been getting uh, calls like that and, uh, regarding visitation and, and not being permitted to be with the loved one. And they're tough ones for us, quite honestly, Joe. Um, uh, but but we do have we do have some resources that we've been using to try and help uh, families that do call us in, in those types of situations. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, are there any parallels that you would draw between your sister Terry's situation and that of the COVID nineteen patients or, or some of the others even though that you're dealing with now? Um, any parallels there? I I, I think uh, the parallel where there's situations where um, Clearly, Terry was not dying, uh, and it was the uh, actions of action of a guardian that was um, that 
took took the steps to to stop her care to, to end her life. And and I think we saw personal. I mean, our 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 nonprofit saw similar situations where they were using COVID as a reason where the person wasn't necessarily dying from any, any underlying, they might have some health issues, but, right. and I remember one particular case where the, the gentleman was, was elderly and, uh, uh, but wasn't dying and, but he had some health issues. And once he contracted COVID, they were using COVID to stop treatment where without even giving him the chance to see if in fact he would res- respond to treatment from the COVID virus. So we got a few calls like that. Um, again, and, and it could have been, you know, the, the motivation behind it could be, could have been because the, the physicians or the hospital was worried they were going to get what we call too, too many patients, right? Mm-hmm. And they won't yeah. be able to care for, and, and they might look at it as being, well, this person's older and he's got a lot of health issues. Um, we, we can use our resources for someone that's not experiencing uh, you know these types of health issues, but uh, so I, I guess that it's kind of a loose parallel, but I think that's somewhat similar where they're trying to stop care even though the person wasn't dying and, and could in fact recovered from the from the virus if given that process, you know given that uh, opportunity given that care you you talked earlier about um, the media and the frustration that you had with how the media portrayed Terry's situation. I'm wondering how are you how do you see the media portraying the realities of the situations of COVID-19 patients, or, or at least those who, who you are, you know, who, who you're dealing with, the families who are calling you? Is, is the media accurately portraying what's going on, or are they accurately portraying the care that these patients are receiving or not? I, I think it depends what state and if it's a Republican or Democratic government, <laughs> <laughs> as we saw in New York. Uh, yeah, it's a good question, Joe. Um, you know, I I don't. Uh, t- t- I guess to just to give the uh, broad answer, uh, it, it's hard to answer unless unless you know the specifics of the case and right. then matched it up with the report that the media was uh, that you were getting from the media and how they were reporting it. Um, I, I the, my 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 buddy, my friend at the hospice, uh, it did make local news and and they did a uh, they did a good job on uh, explaining what was happening and and really the injustice of. Removing Ra, you know, my my friend uh, from from you know his father's dying days. So, uh, but th- but that's a good question. I uh, unfortunately, I think like a growing number of Americans, I've become very I I have been and continue to be very cynical of the media and and never know if you're getting an objective um, if if if, if right. the court is being objective or not or if they're omitting things or if, if they're distorting the, the, the truth. So I'm very skeptical of almost anything I read today. Uh, and if you're getting an accurate portrayal, particularly when it comes to quote unquote end of life issues or, or uh, the issues that we're, we're talking about today, are, are, are you getting an accurate portrayal of, of just what's happening? Yeah. And again, that's a, that's a great segue into my next question. And it's, it's really kind of taking a 30,000 foot look uh, or 30,000 foot view, I should say, about how we, how we deal with people who are seriously ill and suffering. So, so overall, Bobby, how would you characterize the medical field? So I'd like to start there. How would you characterize the medical field's response to ser- serious illness and suffering today? Is it, would you say it's better, worse, or the same as it was when you and your family were dealing with Terry's situation? Yeah, well, I, I think specifically to my sister's case, it was such a small sample because we were, we were dealing with just uh, those that were involved in my sister's case, which, um, and of course, at the time, I I was uh, against the, the manner in which they were deciding to treat treat my sister. But it's a, it's a good question. I mean, there's certainly signs, uh, Joe. I, I don't know, you know, is, is uh, well, obviously, there, I think, it's impact our ethics, the medical ethics today of the physicians. Um, uh, I, I don't know if you have the same type of patient doctor relationship that we had, I don't know how long ago, 10, 20 years ago. Um, I know that that's changed. I, I don't know if these decisions, well, actually I, I, there was an example of a, a of a, um, a doctor who shared with me one time that, uh, uh they do get pressure from the administration to, um, in care cases to either continue or stop care where they might feel as though uh, the patient's going to benefit and should continue care. And 
uh, perhaps the administration feels it, it's too costly, too much of the resources, and, and take steps to uh, to terminate care. So I, I think for, you know there's there's some a financial incentive that are driving some of these decisions. Mm-hmm. So I don't you know is it is it the ethics of of a physician? Sure, I, th- I think that is impacting the decisions that these doctors make today. Uh, but but I think there's an, an awful lot of financial pressure. That whether it's the insurance companies or, or administrating administrators from the hospital that are, are pressuring decisions, um, perhaps someone that needs long term care and they don't see the value of caring for that person uh, because it might be too costly and therefore are, are trying to uh, find ways to, to stop care. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we, we, see, we see a lot of that, Joe, whether it's the doctors making these decisions or if it's coming from, from elsewhere. Uh, but we, we see decisions that are being, and, and that's been my biggest uh, issue and fear is how quickly, how quickly uh, some of these decisions are being made to yeah. stop care yep. uh, oh, within yeah. hours, days, or uh, maybe, a, maybe a little longer, but um, without even giving the chance, uh, the opportunity to see if a, a person might respond to treatment because they feel, like, okay, this, this, we, we, we're, our prognosis is is this person is going to need a lot lot of time and care and it's going to be costly so let's pressure the family let's do what we can to, to try and see if we can we can stop care and and uh, not have to deal with uh, someone that might use a lot of our resources here at the hospital. Yeah, I mean it sounds it sounds terrible. You, you hate to think that decisions are being made on because of you know, financial decisions are, are reasons why care is being terminated. But I think that's the reality. Healthcare rationing we know it exists and. That's just the reality of, of the world we live today, and uh, it's 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 a, a big part of the work that we do is is just how quickly these decisions are being made, and that, and that's as I said, that's been my biggest uh, frustration is not giving these because the calls we get, Joe, or you know, we believe, we we try to assess the situation as best we can, but I got to tell you, the, most of the calls that we get, and there's some that we refuse to, you know, we just don't feel like we should help. Uh, just not knowing enough medically what's going on, but these families we believe are making reasonable. They're not being unreasonable with what they what they're asking the doctors in the hospital to do, and uh, so we we'll, we'll fight with them to try and get them the care. And, and just how quick they want to stop treatment is, as I said, is frustrating and, and frightening. Yeah, you know, you you uh, you you raised a, another question in my mind with what you just said there. So, how can people best advocate for their loved one? Especially if they if they don't believe that their loved one is receiving adequate adequate care, what should people do if they find themselves in the situation that you just mentioned? Oh, good, call us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that, that yeah, it's well, that's the one. I mean, that's the question I get asked uh, when, when I speak and and talk on this issue because you know people hear these things and they they want to be able to to try and and protect their loved ones or you know, how do they get treatment if they're confronted with with something like these types of scenarios. And, uh, yeah, I, I tell you, uh, Joe, it, it seems to me that the way things, a lot of the safety nets that were once in place for these patients, uh, you don't find them as much anymore. And doctors and, and I think hospitals, uh, are, have much more, um, the ability to, to make decisions to stop treatment, uh, sometimes independently, uh, yeah. uh regardless of what the family is asking, obviously that's what we were just talking about. So uh, the one thing we always try to stress is, yes, you, you need, you need to assign a healthcare agent. Uh, the most important thing you can do in, in our, you know, today with, with our healthcare system. Uh, and we say the same thing. Right. I mean, if you ever become incapacitated, you need someone to step in, share your values uh, and understand and know your values. And, 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 and if they have to, uh, fight for you um, uh, if you feel like you're not getting the proper care, and then if 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 you still feel like you're in that situation and you ha- and you have a, a strong advocate and they still feel like you're you're hitting um, you're hitting brick walls so to speak, then I mean yes, that's the, that's why we're here. I mean we 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 have the resources to to try and intervene to, to help families when they're confronted with these types of scenarios. But uh, I'm, I'm there's other organizations out there that 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 work in the, in the same way we do. Uh, but, but there's not, a, there's not a lot. Uh, right. uh, so aside from that, Joe, I mean, um, uh, I, I guess you just, um, you know, I, 
I don't know what families can do other than just uh, just be strong advocates and 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 do what they can to try and uh, get the treatment they 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 want for their loved one. Just uh, before I forget, how do people contact you if they want to contact you? Sure, we we have a crisis lifeline number, uh, and we also have it's lifeandhope.com. You can go there. It's eight five five is our number eight five five three hundred four six six four six seven three, and and they can contact us that way. And and as I said, we we have the resources. We we've been pretty successful getting people people to help families to help their they need. Now, as I said, the outcome isn't always what we would we would hope, uh, but we are we've been very successful at least getting them the help that they need with the resources that that we have and we've you know obtained over the last 16 years we have a tremendous amount of resources that we're able to to uh tap into to help these families and in fact your organization is one of them i mean yep, we've, absolutely we've recommended families you know some of those thorny ethical issues that i just don't want to too complex or uh, <laughs> I, I gladly say that hey there's a wonderful organization gee thanks <laughs> I'll be happily take take your call and, and try to help you. But but yeah, there's some wonderful groups out there um, that that are there in place to, to help these families, whether it's an ethical issue for for healthcare agents, uh, whatever it is they might need. Um, and and it, yeah, I just like to always say, Joe. I mean, there's yeah, we 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 seem to be seeing a growing number of doctors that that um, that we're fighting. <laughs> Uh, on a regular basis, but there, we we still there. There are so many wonderful doctors that exist and uh, and still value life and and taking consideration and dignity and don't look at suffering as being a bad thing and therefore want to try and stop it. Um, yeah. They know part, you know, so, so, and and facilities too, for that matter. Just finding them and making sure that these are the people that that are that are in situ, you know, that 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 hopefully are caring for for our loved ones because. Uh, we're, we're hopeful that we find doctors because we, we want to believe doctors. We want right. to, we trust them. We want that. We want to believe that what they're, they're telling us is the truth. And, and, um, but sometimes we just have to, uh, to uh, look elsewhere and, and, and get second opinions and push back and, and make sure that our loved ones getting the best treatment possible. Yeah. I hear. All right. So we talked about the medical field's response to serious illness and suffering. What about society as a whole? Is uh, is society's response to serious illness and suffering better, worse, or the same today than it was um, when your sister was going through her ordeal? Oh, I, I think undoubtedly worse. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree with you. Um, you know, um, I mean, everything is I – mean, the whole focus is on suffering, right? We, we need to – suffering is bad. We need to eliminate it. Uh, um so, so yeah, I mean, just look at the assisted suicide issue, right. and that's their whole platform is to uh, is to focus the, the entire reason, rationale, and justify the ending of a person's life because of their you know so called suffering. So, um, yeah, it's 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 difficult. I mean, um, it's it's a tough issue, and you know, Catholics we know uh, the value of suffering, and uh, but in a secular society, how do you convince someone that? Um, you know, just because someone is suffering doesn't mean we should kill them, right? I mean, killing is never the answer, uh, particularly with the way we can manage uh, pain today and uh, and all those reasons uh, why we should embrace the sufferer, right? Uh, and, and 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 not abandon them at perhaps one of the, the worst times in their life. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's it the, the media society, uh, it's. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to ignore just kind of the direction the last 15, 20 years and how it's worsened and uh, how much harder it is to uh, to look at a person's value and dignity and want to show them the compassion and love them and embrace them and give them the care they deserve. Right. All right. We can't end this interview on a negative note. So, Bobby, what final words of wisdom do you have for our <laughs> listeners today? Not, not to put any pressure on you, but... Uh... I don't know what is the wisdom. Well, well, I, I guess Ins I, inspire I, us in your in your final words here. Well, yeah, we, we've talked a lot of a lot. Of, I guess a lot of things that that. I mean, it's no fun talking about these issues, right? But I, I will say that uh, there has been so much good, and we've been our family's been blessed in, in such ways. I I could I couldn't share with all the ways with you today, Joe, um, just because of what my sister went through. In fact, mm -hmm. we're now working 
with an organization to try and establish a, a rehab center uh, in the memory of my sister that's going to serve patients with brain injuries and give them the chance perhaps that other doctors or facilities aren't, aren't affording them. So uh, that, that's, a, that's been a huge blessing, a huge dream of our family is to establish a rehab center um, in, in the memory of my sister. So, um, so and, and, and just the wonderful people and organizations that we've met over the years and families uh, that inspire us to continue our work. So, uh, so much good has come out of something that happened to my sister that was so terrible. And, and we just work every day to honor her and her legacy and try to help other people with brain injuries. Yeah. And not go through what she went through. Yep. No, I yeah. hear you. Right. Well, God could always bring, uh, God can always bring something good out of, out of evil. Yeah, he surely does. You know, you don't see it at the time, Joe. I mean, obviously, uh, during my sister's, and particularly with my father and his suffering, my mom, gosh, you, you don't you don't see what good could come from this, but but so much has, and uh, and we're just blessed to, to be able to be in a position to help others now because of what Terry uh, went through. Yeah. Uh, one last thing, just to repeat, how do people contact you if they need to contact you? Sure. The easiest way is lifeandhope.com, uh, and, and we have our our number right there in the front page. It's hard to miss. And if your family is in crisis or if you have any questions or just want to reach out and, and, and email us, that's how you do it. Go to lifeandhope.com and we'd be happy to hear from you in, in any way, uh, any way you want to support us. So uh, lifeandhope.com. Excellent. Bobby Schindler, thank you for joining me on Bioethics On Air. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. For more information on these topics and other bioethical issues, please visit our website, ncbcenter.org, and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. The views expressed on Bioethics On Air are not necessarily those of the National Catholic Bioethics Center. If you have comments or questions about this or any of our podcasts, or if you would like to subscribe to our Bioethics Public Policy Report, please contact me, your host, Joe Zalot, at J. Z-A-L-O-T at ncbcenter.org. For archived editions of our podcasts, please go to our website, hover on the blogs and podcasts button, and then click bioethics on air. Finally, please remember that the NCBC has a 24-hour consultation service. You can contact us by phone at 215-877-2660 or by going to our website, again, ncbcenter.org and clicking on ask a question. Thank you for listening, and may God's peace be with you.